Let's open our Bibles to the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's read the chapter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ." Whom having not seen, ye love, in whom though now you see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, Pass this time of your sojourning here in fear, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him to believe in God, that raised him up from the dead, and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass." And all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. That concludes the reading of the first chapter of First Peter.
Now then, what we want to do this morning is give you an introduction, verses 1 and 2, basically, and then give you a division. We want to talk about the threefold division is this. I'll give you that to begin with, and then we'll come back with somewhat of an introduction. The threefold division is living in hope, verses 3 through 12, living in holiness, verses 13 through 21, and living in harmony. Verses 22 through 25. Hope, holiness, and harmony. But I want to give you somewhat an introduction. In verse 1, we see Peter naming himself as the author of the epistle. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he is the author. He states his office, an apostle. His readers are strangers, he says, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The strangers are scattered abroad, means dispersed. And they were in great need of company, uh, comfort, and so are you and I in great need of comfort. They need to be encouraged. Verse 2 outlines the plan of salvation. Notice verse 2, it says, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. You have here, you're chosen by the Father, set apart unto faith by the Holy Spirit, and cleansed by the blood of Christ. It says sanctified by the Spirit. That means to be set apart. And we have obeyed the gospel. It says unto obedience. Obedience. You obey the gospel that was delivered to you. The obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. It was applied when you believed to you. Sprinkle with the blood of Jesus Christ brought, brought pardon and it brought cleansing and it brought uh, justification, forgiveness. All of these things are attached to the blood of Jesus Christ. When it uh, says sprinkled by the blood, this reminds us of the Old Testament Passover lamb where the blood was sprinkled on the little and on the side posts of the entrance of the houses of Israel. We've given you that broad outline, verses 3 through 12 and 13 through 21 and 22 through 25. But if you notice again, verse 1, it says, Peter, the word is Petros. It means a, a piece of rock. His name was Simon in Matthew 4, verse 18. But Jesus gave him the name Peter. And in John 1, verse 42, Peter was called Cephas, meaning a stone. His office, of course, was an apostle, one sent on a commission. An apostle is the highest office, was the highest office in the church. The apostles are gone today. They lived, and they're out of the... Uh, in, in history, and they made their mark as the foundation of the New Testament church. It says we're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. He was chosen by Christ himself. He was one of the first named apostles. They were the first witnesses of Christ's death and resurrection. And then preachers as well. They proclaimed the message of salvation, and it's through the death and resurrection of Christ. Paul, later on, was a, an apostle to the Gentiles, one born out of due time. These apostles had power to work miracles. And by the way, not at all times, but when Christ was pleased for them to do it and when it was necessary for them to do it. You know, Paul at one time says, and we just read it and studied it in our Sunday school, he says, Trophimus have I left at Miletum sick. There was one of Paul's fellow laborers and companions that he had left sick. So if he had power at all times to work miracles, he would have healed him immediately, I'm sure. Notice an apostle. He just says an apostle. A-N. 
He did not claim more than that. Some people have put him in a higher position, but Peter himself did not claim more than to be an apostle. But he was indeed an apostle. You know, to pretend what we have not is hypocrisy. If he had pretended to be more than an apostle, as some have tried to picture him, that would be hypocrisy to make such pretension. And by the way, to deny what he, what we have is ingratitude. He had to name himself as an apostle. He didn't exalt himself. He says, I'm an apostle. He didn't deny his office as an apostle. So that teaches you and I a lesson. To be what we are and not try to claim more than we are, but certainly identify ourselves as what we are. Not be ashamed of what we are. You see the middle ground to take? Not over-exaltation and not underestimating your office and your calling for that would be ungrateful. Paul was grateful that he was called. Peter was grateful he was called. They were grateful they were apostles. His readers were strangers scattered abroad or resident aliens in a foreign land. Not only the Jews, but we also uh, see that the Gentiles were included in the message of this uh, book of First Peter. You get down to chapter 1, especially chapter 2, verse 10. He speaks of the Gentiles who were not a people, but now the people of God. Not only are they strangers and were they strangers, but we are strangers upon this earth. Paul tells us in the book of Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, for our conversation is in heaven. The word conversation there means our citizenship is where? Listen, in heaven. If our citizenship is in heaven, then on earth we're aliens or strangers here. The Bible says that Abraham walked as uh, strangers and pilgrims on the earth in his generation. And by the way, we're just transing, uh, just passing through here. Our citizenship is in heaven. And Jesus said in Matthew 13, verse 38, that believers are God's seed that are scattered. And they're scattered throughout the earth. So that we're scattered as well as those scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Asia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now then, let's get in to the outline of the plan of salvation in verse 2. We've already mentioned we're chosen by God the Father. The Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. The Son saved you when He died for you on the cross and you accepted that salvation. You had to surrender to the Holy Spirit and when you uh, surrendered to the Lord, uh, the seal and the transaction took place. In Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14, it says, listen carefully, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you trusted, you heard the word of truth, you heard the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, or upon believing, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. And it goes on to say, which is the earnest down payment or guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of His glory. So you're chosen by the Father. You're saved by Christ's death on the cross, the Son. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit. That word, the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, reminds us of the blood of the Passover lamb that we mentioned earlier, that it was sprinkled upon the lintel and upon the doorposts of the houses of Israel. And when it was sprinkled upon the lintel and the doorposts, it protected the firstborn of that house from the death angel that was passing through the land. And when you have the sprinkling of the blood applied to your heart's door and uh, in effect upon you, you have the protection 
from anything that would harm you and from the judgment that was passing through the land and from the future judgment. Even the future judgment. If you study John chapter 5, verse 24, it says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, listen carefully, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and listen, and shall not come into condemnation or judgment, but is passed from death into life. So by the sprinkling of that blood, you're protected for that future judgment, from that future judgment. All right, let us now get to the three main points of our message. Living in hope and living in holiness and living in harmony. Verses 3 through 12, living in hope. Notice verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope, or a living, actually this word lively means a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now then, we know that this is a continuous statement because it's very important to watch the punctuation in your Bible. You notice there's a comma there. To an inheritance incorruptible. And we go on and on until we get to the end of the sentence or the statement. But we will get that in a moment. I just want you to notice that that's just the beginning. He's begotten us again, verse 3, unto a lively hope. So let's deal with that. Christ is our hope. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, it says Christ who is our hope. Verse 3 here we're studying says he's, we're begotten again unto a lively hope. Begotten again means born again unto a lively hope. Begotten. When you're begotten, you're born. And you must be born again, Jesus said. And we're born again by the Spirit of God. In John chapter 3 verse 8, that which is born of this Flesh is flesh, he says, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And we're begotten by the Word of God. So the Spirit of God and the Word of God. James 1 verse 18 says, Of His own will, listen carefully, begat He us with the Word of truth. The Word of God. In fact, in this chapter, it tells us that we're born again of the Word. Verse 23 says, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So it's the living Word. It's the Word that brings life to us. Not only the Spirit of God, but the Word of God. So we're living in hope because we're begotten again unto a lively or living hope. And it says here, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We were dead in trespasses and sins. It tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. It tells us that we were resurrected to walk in a new life tells us that God who is rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us has saved us by His grace. Now these next several verses show us what we need to study verse by verse. We're begotten again and we're to live in hope because in verse 4 it says because of our heavenly inheritance. We'll try to point out something in each verse. Because of our heavenly inheritance. Look at that. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. You're living in hope because you have an inheritance in the future. We have not only a living hope, then we have a lasting hope. Colossians 1.5 says, the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. It's laid up for you. Here he says it's reserved in heaven for you in verse 4. So we have a living hope. In verse 5, we have a living hope. And we're to live in hope because we're kept by God's power. Look at verse 5. 
who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We're kept by the power of God. To be watchers in advance is the way that it indicates we're kept, or kept with a garrison, a garrison of soldiers. It means to mount guards at the gate to protect us. So if we have a heavenly inheritance, verse 4, that's reserved in heaven for us, and we're kept for it in verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith and the salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, we not only have a hope of the inheritance, but we have a sure hope that we will receive our inheritance. You know, if you have an earthly inheritance, you say, well, I have an inheritance. My rich uncle and mother and dad, grandma, grandfather, oh, they've left me all this. Well... You may get it and you may not get it. A lot of things can happen on this earth. But, if you have a heavenly inheritance, that's what? Described as incorruptible and undefiled and it fadeth not away. That's fine. And it says it's reserved in heaven for you. That's your inheritance. The inheritance is okay. You say there's nothing wrong with that. I'm sure it's going to be there, safe and sound. But how am I going to get to it? And am I sure I'm going to receive it? Yes, because verse 5 says, who are kept by the power of God through faith and salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You're garrisoned and kept for that inheritance. It's not only kept for you, reserved in heaven for you, but you are kept for it to make sure you receive it. Now then, we have a living hope because we have a heavenly inheritance. We have a living hope because we're kept by God's power. And furthermore, we have a living hope even though we may have many trials along the way. Verses 6 and 7. Let's read verse 6 and 7. Wherein you greatly rejoice. We greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. It says it may need be that you're in heaviness through manifold temptations. There may be a necessity for you to endure some trials, but you can still live in hope. Our sufferings are but for a season. We must go through testings in our life. We sing a song, trials dark on every hand, we will not understand. We can't understand it, but we'll understand it better, what? By and by. And like the song that... uh, Curtis and Melcina sang for us, keep me safe while the storm, till the storm passes by. We need to be kept safe. For faith in the midst of trial. Oh, for faith that will not shrink, though pressed by many a foe. That will not tremble on the brink of poverty or woe. That will not murmur nor complain beneath the chastening rod. But in the hour of grief and pain can lean upon its God. The faith that keeps the narrow way till life's last spark has fled. And with a cool and heavenly ray lights up our dying bed. Lord, give me such a faith as this. And then, whate'er may come, I even now can taste that bliss of my eternal home. So we have the assurance we can live, what? In hope, even in the midst of trials. And then, we can live in hope because we can see Christ with the eyes of our faith. Look at verse 8. Whom having not seen you love... How do you see Christ? We have not seen Him with our natural eyes, but with the eyes of faith. Whom having not seen, you love. In whom though now you see Him not yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. 
so we can live in hope because through faith, our eyes behold Christ. We entrust our spiritual well-being to Christ, believing. Look at verse 9 now. We can live in hope because we know the final result of that faith. It says in verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. What do you see? The end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. So we can live in hope. That's the conclusive result. That is how things will end up. That's how you will finish the course. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. You know, it makes a great deal of difference how things end up. You need to get a good start, that's true. And you need to have a good going in the middle, but you need to make sure that things end up right. Paul said in one place that I might finish my course with joy. Do you want to finish your course with joy? He said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I'm now ready to be offered. I've fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. And he said, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day, and not only me only, but all those also that love his appearing. All right, we can live in hope. Now look, we can live in hope because of verse 10 and 11. Because of the great salvation which the prophets wrote of. It was a subject of great inquiry. Verse 10 and 11. This salvation we've been talking about and preaching about. Moses and David and Isaiah and Micah and all the Old Testament scriptures. It says, of which the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. Verse 10. Who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them. That's the Old Testament prophets. When it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Because that great salvation that we're talking about was the subject of inquiry by the prophets. You remember Jesus after the resurrection? How he expounded to them, the Bible says, the witnesses and disciples along the way. He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So in all the scriptures, the salvation concerning uh, you and I through Christ's sufferings and death and resurrection was expounded. And that's what the apostles preached. That's what we preach today. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now verse 12. It was revealed to the apostles and preached with the Holy Ghost power and was so special that the angels wanted to know about it. Look at verse 12. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with a Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. It was revealed to the apostles. The apostles preached it. They had the Holy Spirit's power. And it says the angels even desire to look into it. To look or to bend aside, to lean over, so as to peer within and to understand things angels desire. To set their heart upon, to long for. The angels would love to know about the salvation that you and I have. They bend aside to see. In the book of Ephesians, let me give you this, in chapter 3, I believe it's verse 10, it says this. Uh, to the intent that now into the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. The principalities and powers in heavenly places referring to the angels. Known by the church. That may be not known by the church. The things that are going on here in the church are a special message to the angels. 
The second point of our message, verse 13 through 21, we'll have to hurry. Living in holiness. Look at it. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Because of this salvation that you have and the hope that you have, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Grace is to be brought. You're saved by grace. You're standing in grace. You walk in grace. You live in grace. And here, what is it? It's going to be brought to you. Grace, the unmerited favor of God and love of God extended to us, unworthy sinners. And yet, it's going to be brought more of it. Can you imagine this? It's like, you know, you and I have the abundance of God's grace here today. And God says, listen carefully. When I come, Jesus says, when I come again, I'm going to have another truckload to give you. I have an abundance more to give you that you do not deserve in the future. Look for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I believe that's a wonderful thought. I want you to notice the punctuation in each one of these verses. It's a continuance of the reason that we should live in holiness. Notice that that's not the end of the statement. And so verse 14 says, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. That's still not all of it. So we're to be obedient children. It tells us, verse 13 tells us why we're to live in holiness. Verse 14 tells us we're to be obedient children. Verse 14 tells us what we're not to do, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. But verse 15 tells us what we are to do. See, verse 13 says why. Verse 14 says what, what not to do. Verse 15 says what we are to do. When we're talking about holiness, we do not mean sinless perfection. Holy means to be set apart and separated to God. We know we're not sinlessly perfect because the Bible says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. His word is not in us. We make him a liar. First John chapter 1 verses 8 through 10. You read those three verses, 8, 9, and 10 in the book of First John chapter 1. But verse 14 tells us we're not to conform to the same pattern that we did before. The former desires in your ignorance. You're to let those go. God's word teaches us how to live, doesn't it? And then it tells us what to do in verse 15. But as he with has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. That means your behavior, your walk of life, what we are to do. In all manner, always, every day, a consistency of a holy, godly walk. Wouldn't that be wonderful if we could encourage every Christian to live this kind of life and then they would do it? They would do it. You say, oh, that's, that's talking about sinners perfection. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about dedication. I'm talking about living a holy life. I'm talking about living in holiness, and it tells us exactly what to do here in all manner of conversation, in our whole life. And notice, it does not end the statement there, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Why? Because God's Word tells us it should be so. We're to obey the Word of God. Because it says we're to live that way. Someone says, I can't live that way. God tells you to. God tells you to live that way. Now then, in a continuation of how we are living in holiness, verse uh, 17 tells us how we're to do it. In the fear of God. And if you call on the Father, and we do call Him Heavenly Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. There's a godly fear and a godly reverence. Fear, in the fear of God. That means alarm in some instances, or fright, or be afraid. We should fear doing wrong as well. 
and fear the chastening hand of God. But there should be a godly reverence too. And if we love and we follow the Lord, perfect love, John says, casteth out fear, for fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. But it means we're to pass the time of our sojourning here in fear. And another reason that we're to live in holiness, because verse 18, notice at the end of verse 17, you just have the colon. You, what, what's the punctuation at the end of verse 17? See that? It's a continued statement. For as much as you know, the reason we're to continue to live in holiness, for as much as you know, verse 18, that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. That's not the end of the statement either. But the price of our redemption, in verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That's why we're to live in holiness. Because of a great price of our redemption. That's still not the end of the statement. Notice in your Bible. I'm trying to show you something here. So verse 18 and 19 are connected together. And it tells us we're to live in holiness because of the great price of our redemption and because of the shed blood of Christ, the precious blood of Christ. It says we're redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Why is the blood of Christ precious? In the word there means costly. We know there's a thought of precious meaning, meaning endearment. Someone is precious to you or dear to you. And Jesus certainly is that. But... Here it's talking about the costly, the greatest cost that could ever be paid. Because it's the price and of our salvation. And it's precious because of its redeeming power. It has redeemed us to God by His precious blood. It's precious because of its atoning power. It's precious because of its cleansing power. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth us from all sin. It's precious because of its preserving power. We're kept by His shed blood. It's precious because it has opened up the way into the presence of God for us. In Hebrews 10, verse 19, we enter into the holiest by the shed blood of Christ. So don't underestimate the reason you should live in holiness, because you're redeemed with a pricely cost. Now then, we're to live in holiness in verses 20 and 21 because of the wonderful and condescending grace that brought us the plan of salvation for our redemption, and brought it down to us. Look look at verse 20 and 21. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Notice it's still a continuation of the statement showing why we should live in holiness. But was manifest in in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead, and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Then it's the end of the statement. Period. We're to live in holiness because of this wonderful condescending grace that brought us the plan of salvation. He was foreordained before the foundation of the world. That means to foresee. God foreseen. To know beforehand. God in His grace included you and I in that plan of salvation. We sing a song. Remember the song we sing? Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan and oh, the grace that brought, brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God has spanned at Calvary. The last point of our message is living in harmony, verses 22 through 25. And we'll try to hurry along. Salvation gives us a living hope, a desire for a holy life, and a wonderful fellowship with the people of God. 
But then we're to live in harmony with the people of God. It says in verse 22, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. You've purified your souls. Look, it was by obedience to the truth that brought about the love of God into your hearts. Romans 5 verse 5 says that the love of God is shed or brought into our hearts by the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit which is given to us. And if you notice this 22nd verse, there's two words for love. Unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. You say, well, I only see one word in my version of the Bible. That's true. But if you know what it says, really, if you study the Greek, you'll find that there are two different words. The first word is brotherly love. That's fraternal love. You know, even unsaved people can have fraternal love and show love of this kind. But we're to have more of that. More than that, it says in the last part, seeing that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. And this is the second word that you find here. And it means divine love. And it takes a, it takes a Christian that's controlled by the Holy Spirit of God to show divine love because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. And now Peter knew these two words. Remember, after the resurrection, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And he used the word divine when he was talking to Peter. Divine love. And Peter says, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. Thou knowest that I am fond of thee. So Peter did not grasp to the divine word when he answered the Lord. He couldn't reach that high because he had, he had denied the Lord thrice. And so what did he say? You know, Lord, I'm fond of you. Now he's reluctant to say, I'm ready to go with thee to prison and to death. After the resurrection, you know, he, he, he knew it failed and he had denied the Lord. Now, Jesus is saying, Peter, you remember the three times you denied? So we ask him three times. And finally, Jesus comes down and condescends to the word that Peter's using as far as love is concerned. So we could go on a whole exposition about that word love. But I want to hurry and conclude. Christian harmony is a blessing to the Lord. It says, see that you love one another uh, with a pure heart fervently. It's a blessing to the Lord, to the church, and believers. If every believer is obeying the Word and practicing love, there will be what? Harmony. You'll be living in harmony. It's only when we're not showing the kind of love we ought to show for one another that there will be disharmony. And we're taught to live in harmony. Let me read and I'll hurry. I'm trying to hurry this. God, there's so much I want to give you that I'm failing to do that. But in Psalm 133, I'm going to read the whole psalm. Be shocked. There's three verses. It says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments, as the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. Now listen, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. So he says, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. We need unity in the church, and I'm thankful we have that in our church. I hate, a, I hate to see a church that's always fighting and fussing and fuming and one fellow against the other and one lifted up with pride and one contentious and, you know, you can't please everybody. Don't try. Are you going to try to please everybody? If you do, you're in the middle of, a, you're in the middle of trouble right now before you start. Try to please God and then try to get them to please God 
And then everybody will be pleased. And that's the way it will work. But that's the only way it will work. All right, quickly, I want to give you the last three verses. In verse 23, we live in harmony because we're born again. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and bideth forever. And then, if we're to live in harmony because we're born again, we're not to be a contradiction to our profession of being a born-again Christian. We're living in harmony. And then verse 24, live in harmony because this life is too short to live any other way. For all flesh, look at verse 24, is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth and the flower thereof falleth away. Life is too short to live any other way. Now, just think about your life. Do you want to live it always arguing with somebody and always debating and always in a controversy and always in a stew and a fizz about things? Do you want to live it that way? You can if you want to. You're able to do that. You want to fuss and fight all the time. But you can also live a peaceful life and a happy life. In spite of the trials we pointed out, didn't we, in the verse 6 and 7? In spite of the great heaviness of manifold temptations, in spite of the fact that the trial of your faith is much more precious than a gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, you can still live in harmony. Everyone has them. And then the last point of our message Live in harmony because the everlasting word and the power of the gospel. It changes us. Look at verse 25. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. God's word will, is eternal. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. It says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. So we have some things here in that first chapter. By the way, we'll get in the second chapter in the next lesson, next Sunday, next message. Second First uh, Peter chapter 2, we have here living in hope, holiness, and harmony. And we'll try to give you a message next Sunday, the Lord will. Let's stand. We'll just have a word of prayer and a, a one verse of invitation hymn. There may be opportunity for someone that needs to accept Christ or someone that needs to join the church or someone that has not followed the Lord in baptism. And if you're here this morning, man or woman, boy or girl, Take life serious and remember that the time has come for you to accept Christ. The time has come for you to be a, a fully 